Chapter Two of Sir Dominic Ferrand. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Nicholas Clifford. Sir Dominic Ferrand by Henry James. Chapter Two. I dare say it will be all right. He seems quiet now," said the poor lady of the parlours a few days later in reference to their litigious neighbour and the precarious piano. The two lodgers had grown regularly acquainted, and the piano had had much to do with it. Just as this instrument served, with the gentleman at number four, as a theme for discussion, so between Peter Baron and the lady of the parlours it had become a basis of peculiar agreement, a topic at any rate of conversation frequently renewed. Mrs. Rives was so prepossessing that Peter was sure that even if they had not had the piano, he would have found something else to thresh out with her. Fortunately, however, they did have it, and he at least made the most of it, knowing more now about his new friend, who, when widowed and fatigued, she held her beautiful child in her arms, looked dimly like a modern Madonna. Mrs. Bundy, as a letter of furnished lodgings, was characterized in general by a familiar domestic severity in respect to picturesque young women, but she had the highest confidence in Mrs. Rives. She was luminous about her being a lady, and a lady who could bring Mrs. Bundy back to a gratified recognition of one of those manifestations of mind for which she had an independent esteem. She was professional, but Jersey Villas could be proud of a profession that didn't happen to be the wrong one. They had seen something of that. Mrs. Rives had a hundred a year. Baron wondered how Mrs. Bundy knew this. He thought it unlikely Mrs. Rives had told her. And for the rest she depended upon her lovely music. Baron judged that her music, even though lovely, was a frail dependence. It would hardly help to fill a concert room. And he asked himself at first whether she played country dances at children's parties or gave lessons to young ladies who studied above their station. Very soon, indeed, he was sufficiently enlightened. It all went fast, for the little boy had been almost as great a help as the piano. Sidney haunted the doorstep of number three. He was eminently sociable, and had established independent relations with Peter, a frequent feature of which was an adventurous visit, upstairs, to picture-books criticized for not being all G.G.'s, and walking-sticks happily more conformable. The young man's window, too, looked out on their acquaintance. Through a starched muslin curtain it kept his neighbour before him, made him almost more aware of her comings and goings than he felt he had a right to be. He was capable of a shyness of curiosity about her, and of dumb little delicacies of consideration. She did give a few lessons, they were essentially local and he ended by knowing more or less what she went out for and what she came in from. She had almost no visitors, only a decent old lady or two, and every day poor dingy Miss Teagle, who was also ancient and who came humbly enough to governess the infant of the parlours. Peter Baron's window had always, to his sense, looked out on a good deal of life, and one of the things it had most shown him was that there is nobody so bereft of joy as not to be able to command for tuppence the services of somebody less joyous. 
Mrs. Rives was a struggler, Baron scarcely liked to think of it, but she occupied a pinnacle for Miss Teagle, who had lived on, and from a noble nursery, into a period of diplomas and humiliation. Mrs. Rives sometimes went out, like Baron himself, with manuscripts under her arm, and, still more like Baron, she almost always came back with them. Her vain approaches were to the music sellers. She tried to compose, to produce songs that would make a hit. A successful song was an income, she confided to Peter, one of the first times he took Sidney, blasé and drowsy, back to his mother. It was not on one of these occasions, but once when he had come in on no better pretext than that of simply wanting to, she had, after all, virtually invited him, that she mentioned how only one song in a thousand was successful, and that the terrible difficulty was in getting the right words. This rightness was just a vulgar fluke. There were lots of words really clever that were of no use at all. Peter said, laughing, that he supposed any words he should try to produce would be sure to be too clever. Yet only three weeks after his first encounter with Mrs. Rives, he sat at his delightful Davenport, well aware that he had duties more pressing, trying to string together rhymes idiotic enough to make his neighbor's fortune. He was satisfied of the fineness of her musical gift. It had the touching note. The touching note was in her person as well. The Davenport was delightful after six months of its tottering predecessor and such a reinforcement to the young man's style was not impaired by his sense of something lawless in the way it had been gained. He had made the purchase in anticipation of the money he expected from Mr. Lockett, but Mr. Lockett's liberality was to depend on the ingenuity of his contributor, who now found himself confronted with the consequence of a frivolous optimism. The fruit of his labor presented, as he stared at it with his elbows on the desk, an aspect uncompromising and incorruptible. It seemed to look up at him reproachfully, and to say, with its essential finish, How could you promise anything so base? How could you pass your word to mutilate and dishonor me? The alterations demanded by Mr. Lockett were impossible. The concessions to the platitude of his conception of the public mind were degrading. The public mind, as if the public had a mind, or any principle of perception more discoverable than the stare of huddled sheep. Peter Baron felt that it concerned him to determine if he were only not clever enough, or if he were simply not abject enough to rewrite his story. He might in truth have had less pride if he had had more skill, and more discretion if he had had more practice. Humility, in the profession of letters, was half of practice, and resignation was half of success. Poor Peter actually flushed with pain, as he recognized that this was not success, the production of gelid prose which his editor could do nothing with on the one side, and he himself could do nothing with on the other. The truth about his luckless tale was now the more bitter from his having managed for some days to taste it as sweet. As he sat there, baffled and sombre, biting his pen, and wondering what was meant by the rewards of literature, he generally ended by tossing away the composition deflowered by Mr. Lockett, 
and trying his hand at the sort of twaddle that Mrs. Rives might be able to set to music. Success in these experiments wouldn't be a reward of literature, but it might very well become a labor of love. The experiments would be pleasant enough for him if they were pleasant for his inscrutable neighbor. That was the way he thought of her now, for he had learned enough about her, little by little, to guess how much there was still to learn. To spend his mornings over cheap rhymes for her was certainly to shirk the immediate question. But there were hours when he judged this question to be altogether too arduous, reflecting that he might quite as well perish by the sword as by famine. Besides, he did meet it obliquely when he considered that he shouldn't be an utter failure if he were to produce some songs to which Mrs. Rives' accompaniments would give a circulation. He had not ventured to show her anything yet, but one morning, at a moment when her little boy was in his room, it seemed to him that, by an inspiration, he had arrived at the happy middle course, it was an art by itself, between sound and sense. If the sense was not confused, it was because the sound was so familiar. He said to the child, to whom he had sacrificed barley sugar, it had no attraction for his own lips, yet in these days there was always some of it about. He had confided to the small Sidney that if he would wait a little he should be entrusted with something nice to take down to his parent. Sidney had absorbing occupation, and, while Peter copied off the song in a pretty hand, roamed, gurgling and sticky, about the room. In this manner he lurched like a little toper into the rear of the Davenport, which stood a few steps out from the recess of the window, and, as he was fond of beating time to his intensest joys, began to bang on the surface of it with a paper-knife which at that spot had chanced to fall upon the floor. At the moment Sidney committed this violence, his kind friend had happened to raise the lid of his desk, and with his head beneath it was rummaging among a mass of papers for a proper envelope. "'I say, I say, my boy!' he exclaimed, solicitous for the ancient glaze of his most cherished possession. Sidney paused an instant, then, while Peter still hunted for the envelope, he administered another, and this time a distinctly disobedient rap. Peter heard it from within, and was struck with the oddity of sound, so much so that leaving the child for a moment under a demoralizing impression of impunity, he waited with quick curiosity for a repetition of the stroke. It came, of course, immediately, and then the young man, who had at the same instant found his envelope, and ejaculated, "'Hello, this thing has a false back,' jumped up and secured his visitor, whom with his left arm he held endurance on his knee, while with his free hand he addressed the missive to Mrs. Rives. As Sidney was fond of errands, he was easily got rid of, and after he had gone Baron stood a moment at the window, chinking pennies and keys in pockets, and wondering if the charming composer would think his song as good, or in other words as bad, as he thought it. His eyes, as he turned away, fell on the wooden back of the Davenport, where, to his regret, the traces of Sidney's assault were visible in three or four ugly scratches. "'Confound the little brute!' he exclaimed, feeling as if an altar had been desecrated. He was reminded, however, of the observation this outrage had led him to make, 
and for further assurance he knocked on the wood with his knuckle. It sounded from that position commonplace enough, but his suspicion was strongly confirmed when again standing beside the desk he put his head beneath the lifted lid and gave ear while with an extended arm he tapped sharply in the same place. The back was distinctly hollow, there was a space between the inner and the outer pieces, he could measure it, so wide that he was a fool not to have noticed it before. The depth of the receptacle from front to rear was so great that it could sacrifice a certain quantity of room without detection. The sacrifice could of course only be for a purpose, and the purpose could only be the creation of a secret compartment. Peter Baron was still boy enough to be thrilled by the idea of such a feature, the more so as every indication of it had been cleverly concealed. The people at the shop had never noticed it, else they would have called his attention to it as an enhancement of value. His legendary lore instructed him that where there was a hiding-place there was always a hidden spring, and he pried and pressed and fumbled in an eager search for the sensitive spot. The article was really a wonder of neat construction, everything fitted with a closeness that completely saved appearances. It took Baron some minutes to pursue his inquiry, during which he reflected that the people of the shop were not such fools after all. They had admitted, moreover, that they had accidentally neglected this relic of gentility. It had been overlooked in the multiplicity of their treasures. He now recalled that the man had wanted to polish it up before sending it home, and that satisfied for his own part with its honourable appearance, and averse in general to shiny furniture, he had in his impatience declined to wait for such an operation, so that the object had left the place for Jersey Villas, carrying presumably its secret with it, two or three hours after his visit. This secret it seemed indeed capable of keeping. There was an absurdity in being baffled, but Peter couldn't find the spring. He thumped and sounded, he listened and measured again, he inspected every joint and crevice with the effect of becoming surer still of the existence of a chamber, and of making up his mind that his Davenport was a rarity. Not only was there a compartment between the two backs, but there was distinctly something in the compartment. Perhaps it was a lost manuscript, a nice, safe, old-fashioned story that Mr. Lockett wouldn't object to. Peter returned to the charge, for it had occurred to him that he had perhaps not sufficiently visited the small drawers, of which, in two vertical rows, there were six in number, of different sizes, inserted sideways into that portion of the structure which formed part of the support of the desk. He took them out again, and examined more minutely the condition of their sockets, with the happy result of discovering at last, in the place into which the third on the left-hand row was fitted, a small sliding panel. Behind the panel was a spring, like a flat button, which yielded with a click when he pressed it, and which instantly produced a loosening of one of the pieces of the shelf, forming the highest part of the Davenport, pieces adjusted to each other with the most deceptive closeness. This particular piece proved to be, in its turn, a sliding panel, which, when pushed, revealed the existence of a smaller receptacle, a narrow oblong box in the false back. Its capacity was limited, 
but if it couldn't hold many things, it might hold precious ones. Baron, in presence of the ingenuity with which it had been dissimulated, immediately felt that, but for the odd chance of little Sidney Rives's having hammered on the outside at the moment he himself happened to have his head in the desk, he might have remained for years without suspicion of it. This apparently would have been a loss, for he had been right in guessing that the chamber was not empty. It contained objects which, whether pressures or not, had at any rate been worth somebody's hiding. These objects were a collection of small flat parcels, of the shape of packets of letters, wrapped in white paper and neatly sealed. The seals, mechanically figured, bore the impress neither of arms nor of initials. The paper looked old, it had turned faintly sallow. The packets might have been there for ages. Baron counted them. There were nine in all, of different sizes. He turned them over and over, felt them curiously, and snuffed in their vague, musty smell, which affected him with the melancholy of some smothered human accent. The little bundles were neither named nor numbered. There was not a word of writing on any of the covers but they plainly contained old letters, sorted and matched according to dates or to authorship. They told some old dead story. They were the ashes of fires burned out. As Peter Baron held his discovery successively in his hands, he became conscious of a queer emotion which was not altogether elation and yet was still less pure pain. He had made a find, but it somehow added to his responsibility. He was in the presence of something interesting, but in a manner he couldn't have defined, this circumstance suddenly constituted a danger. It was the perception of the danger, for instance, which caused to remain in abeyance any impulse he might have felt to break one of the seals. He looked at them all narrowly, but he was careful not to loosen them, and he wondered uncomfortably whether the contents of the secret compartment would be held in equity to be the property of the people in the King's Road. He had given money for the Davenport, but had he given money for these buried papers? He paid by a growing consciousness that a nameless chill had stolen into the air the penalty, which he had many a time paid before, of being made of sensitive stuff. It was as if an occasion had insidiously arisen for a sacrifice, a sacrifice for the sake of a fine superstition, something like honour or kindness or justice, something indeed perhaps even finer still, a difficult deciphering of duty, an impossible tantalising wisdom. Standing there before his ambiguous treasure, and losing himself for the moment in the sense of a dawning complication, he was startled by a light, quick tap at the door of his sitting-room. Instinctively, before answering, he listened an instant. He was in the attitude of a miser, surprised while counting his hoard. Then he answered, "'One moment, please,' and slipped a little heap of packets into the biggest of the drawers of the Davenport, which happened to be open. The aperture of the false back was still gaping, and he had not time to work back the spring. He hastily laid a big book over the place, and then went and opened his door. It offered him a sight none the less agreeable for being unexpected, the graceful and agitated figure of Mrs. Rives. Her agitation was so visible that he thought at first that something dreadful had happened to her child. 
that she had rushed up to ask for help, to beg him to go for the doctor. Then he perceived that it was probably connected with the desperate verses he had transmitted to her a quarter of an hour before, for she had his open manuscript in one hand, and was nervously pulling it about with the other. She looked frightened and pretty, and if, in invading the privacy of a fellow-lodger, she had been guilty of a departure from rigid custom, she was at least conscious of the enormity of the step, and incapable of treating it with levity. The levity was for Peter Baron, who endeavoured, however, to clothe his familiarity with respect, pushing forward the seat of honour, and repeating that he rejoiced in such a visit. The visitor came in, leaving the door ajar, and after a minute, during which to help her, he charged her with the purpose of telling him that he ought to be ashamed to send her down such rubbish, she recovered herself sufficiently to stammer out that his song was exactly what she had been looking for, and that after reading it she had been seized with an extraordinary, irresistible impulse, that of thanking him for it in person, and without delay. "'It was the impulse of a kind nature,' he said, "'and I can't tell you what pleasure you give me.' She declined to sit down, and evidently wished to appear to have come but for a few seconds. She looked confusedly at the place in which she found herself, and when her eyes met his own, they struck him as anxious and appealing. She was evidently not thinking of his song, though she said three or four times over that it was beautiful. "'Well, I only wanted you to know, and now I must go,' she added, but on his hearth-rug she lingered, with such an odd helplessness, that he felt almost sorry for her. "'Perhaps I can improve it if you find it doesn't go,' said Baron. "'I'm so delighted to do anything for you I can.' "'There may be a word or two that might be changed,' she answered rather absently. I shall have to think it over, to live with it a little, but I like it, and that's all I wanted to say. "'Charming of you. I'm not a bit busy,' said Baron. Again she looked at him with a troubled intensity, then suddenly she demanded, "'Is there anything the matter with you?' "'The matter with me?' "'I mean like being ill or worried. I wondered if there might be. I had a sudden fancy, and that, I think, is really why I came up.' "'There isn't indeed. I'm all right. But your sudden fancies are inspirations.' "'It's absurd. You must excuse me. Good-bye,' said Mrs. Rives. "'What are the words you want changed?' Baron asked. "'I don't want any, if you're all right. Good-bye,' his visitor repeated, fixing her eyes an instant on an object on his desk that had caught them. His own glanced in the same direction and he saw that in his hurry to shuffle away the packets found in the Davenport, he had overlooked one of them, which lay with its seals exposed. For an instant he felt found out, as if he had been concerned in something to be ashamed of, and it was only his quick second thought that told him how little the incident of which the packet was a sequel was an affair of Mrs. Rives's. Her conscious eyes came back to his, as if they were sounding them, and suddenly this instinct of keeping his discovery to himself was succeeded by a really startled inference that, with the rarest alertness, she had guessed something, and that her guess, it seemed almost supernatural, had been her real motive. Some secret sympathy had made her vibrate, had touched her with the knowledge that he had brought something to light. 
After an instant he saw that she also divined the very reflection he was then making, and this gave him a lively desire, a grateful, happy desire, to appear to have nothing to conceal. For herself it determined her still more to put an end to her momentary visit. But before she had passed to the door he exclaimed, "'All right! How can a fellow be anything else who has just had such a find?' She paused at this, still looking earnest, and asking, "'What have you found?' "'Some ancient family papers in a secret compartment of my writing-table.' And he took up the packet he had left out, holding it before her eyes. "'A lot of things like that!' "'What are they?' murmured Mrs. Rives. "'I haven't the least idea. They're sealed.' "'You haven't broken the seals?' She had come further back. "'I haven't had time. It only happened ten minutes ago.' "'I knew it,' said Mrs. Rives, more gaily now. "'What did you know? That you were in some predicament? You're extraordinary. I never heard of anything so miraculous down two flights of stairs.' "'Are you in a quandary?' the visitor asked. "'Yes, about giving them back.' Peter Barron stood smiling at her and wrapping his packet on the palm of his hand. "'What do you advise?' She herself smiled now, with her eyes on the sealed parcel. "'Back to whom?' "'The man of whom I bought the table.' "'Ah, then, they're not from your family?' "'No, indeed. The piece of furniture in which they were hidden is not an ancestral possession. I bought it at second hand. You see it's old. The other day in the King's Road. Obviously the man who sold it to me sold me more than he meant. He had no idea, from his own point of view it was stupid of him, that there was a hidden chamber, or that mysterious documents were buried here. Ought I to go and tell him? It's rather a nice question. Are the papers of value? Mrs. Rives inquired. I haven't the least idea, but I can ascertain by breaking a seal. Don't, said Mrs. Rives, with much expression. She looked grave again. It's rather tantalizing. It's a bit of a problem, Baron went on, turning his packet over. Mrs. Rives hesitated. Will you show me what you have in your hand? He gave her the packet, and she looked at it, and held it for an instant to her nose. It has a queer, charming old fragrance, he said. Charming? It's horrid. She handed him back the packet, saying again more emphatically, Don't! Don't break a seal. Don't give back the papers. Is it honest to keep them? Certainly. They're yours as much as the people's of the shop. They were in the hidden chamber when the table came to the shop, and the people had every opportunity to find them out. They didn't. Therefore let them take the consequences. Peter Baron reflected, diverted by her intensity. She was pale, with eyes almost ardent. The table had been in the place for years. That proves the things haven't been missed. Let me show you how they were concealed, he rejoined, and he exhibited the ingenious recess and working of the curious spring. She was greatly interested. She grew excited and became familiar. She appealed to him again not to do anything so foolish as to give up the papers, the rest of which, in their little blank, impenetrable covers, he placed in a row before her. They might be traced, their history, their ownership, he argued, to which she replied that this was exactly why he ought to be quiet. He declared that women had not the smallest sense of honour, and she retorted that at any rate they have other perceptions 
more delicate than those of men. He admitted that the papers might be rubbish, and she conceded that nothing was more probable, yet when he offered to settle the point off-hand, she caught him by the wrist, acknowledging that, absurd as it was, she was nervous. Finally she put the whole thing on the ground of his just doing her a favour. She asked him to retain the papers, to be silent about them, simply because it would please her. That would be reason enough. Baron's acquaintance, his agreeable relations with her, advanced many steps in the treatment of this question. An element of friendly candour made its way into their discussion of it. "'I can't make out why it matters to you one way or another, nor why you should think it worth talking about,' the young man reasoned. "'Neither can I. It's just a whim.' "'Certainly. If it will give you any pleasure, I'll say nothing at the shop.' "'That's charming of you, and I'm very grateful. I see now that this was why the spirit moved me to come up, to save them,' Mrs. Rives went on. She added, moving away, that now she had saved them, she really must go. "'To save them for what, if I mayn't break the seals?' Baron asked. "'I don't know. For a generous sacrifice?' "'Why should it be generous? What's at stake?' Peter demanded, leaning against the doorpost as she stood on the landing. "'I don't know what, but I feel as if something or other were in peril. Burn them up!' she exclaimed with shining eyes. "'Ah, you ask too much. I'm so curious about them.' "'Well, I won't ask more than I ought, and I'm much obliged to you for your promise to be quiet. I trust to your discretion. Good-bye.' "'You ought to reward my discretion,' said Baron, coming out to the landing. She had partly descended the staircase, and she stopped, leaning against the baluster, and smiling up at him. "'Surely you've had your reward in the honour of my visit?' "'That's delightful as far as it goes. But what will you do for me if I burn the papers?' Mrs. Rives considered a moment. "'Burn them first, and you'll see.' On this she went rapidly downstairs, and Baron, to whom the answer appeared inadequate, and the proposition, indeed, in that form grossly unfair, returned to his room. The vivacity of her interest in a question in which she had discoverably nothing at stake mystified, amused, and in addition irresistibly charmed him. She was delicate, imaginative, inflammable, quick to feel, quick to act. He didn't complain of it. It was the way he liked women to be, but he was not impelled for the hour to commit the sealed packets to the flames. He dropped them again into their secret well, and after that he went out. He felt restless and excited. Another day was lost for work. The dreadful job to be performed for Mr. Lockett was still further off. End of chapter 2